Creative Babble. Hey guys, it's me, Javier. And I'm back with a whole new season for you. But this time, it's going to be a little different. Instead of me telling you a different story each week, well, I decided to do a serialized season instead, where I tell you a single story over multiple episodes. So what is it? It's actually about the very first episode I ever aired on this show. It's about the Word of Faith Fellowship. You know, back in my first episode, I met up with a man who lived near me who says he escaped a cult. His name is John Cooper. So I contacted him and said, hey, do you want to meet up? I told him, I'm thinking about starting a podcast and would like to tell your story. But I didn't want to meet him at his house. I mean, he is a former cult member and I didn't want him to come to my house. So we just met up at a park in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. At this point, I didn't know what pretend radio was about. I honestly didn't. And I didn't know much about his story either. All I knew was that he was in some sort of religious sect. I didn't know how bad the allegations were. And what he told me that day in that park blew my mind. But in the end, I feel like I didn't do the story justice. Like, that's just one guy's story. I needed to go to the other side of the state where the cult is located and do a little bit more digging. So I got in my car and I drove west. And after spending a whole day in Spindale, North Carolina, I thought to myself, there is no way that I can keep everything I just learned in one episode. I said, there's so much material. This has to be its own season. So if season one was about John Cooper, season three is all about the town of Spindale, North Carolina. This episode that you're about to listen to is actually my first three episodes rolled into one. And I'm going to stitch them all together by playing some ads for some nonprofit organizations. And at the end of the episode, there's a preview for the new season. Now, many of you have already heard this story, but trust me, even I had to go back and listen to these episodes. If you're new to Pretend Radio, well, this is a great place to start. Once the season starts... I'm not going to spend a lot of time setting things up. We're just going to get right to it. Let me tell you, it's pretty crazy. I got deeper into this story than any other journalist. The BBC has tried and failed. The Associated Press tried and they couldn't get in. Even A&E is producing a documentary right now on the Word of Faith Fellowship, and they didn't even get the access that I got. In fact, I had the executive producer call me to ask me how I did it. So enjoy this flashback episode as you revisit The Prophet from Season 1. And get ready, because Season 3 is coming very soon. Alright, here we go. Let's do this. I first met John Cooper at a park in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He told me about a night where his pastor, Jane Whaley, called for a meeting with some of the church's younger members. You see, some of these young adults found themselves in trouble with the church, and they needed some sort of intervention. He remembers Pastor Jane Whaley saying, 
you know, y'all are so out from under authority and you're all, you know, given to so much sin and you're so wicked. Um, and so y'all young people need to get together and like have a revival of sorts. There's probably about 40, 50 young people that were all told to show up. And so we show up on Monday night and, and people are talking and sharing and whatever, you know, like they normally did reading scripture. They were asked to go around the room and confess their sins. John remembers he and his wife were just sitting there quietly, just waiting their turn. You know, they're all going around and kind of talking about what God's doing in their life or what sin God is convicting them of. <laughs> but I, I was just sitting there being quiet, like, uh, like trying to figure out what am I going to say, right? Well, over half of people have already said something and they're kind of working their way around. And my wife and I are both just being like really quiet over here in the corner. And so they kind of turned on us and were like, what are y'all giving to? Like, what are, you know, why are y'all sitting over there, um, you know, not, not opening your heart? Then things escalated quickly. And like almost instantaneously, they were like, you have unclean in your life. You're, you know, you're given to the unclean. You're doing something wrong. And of course, they didn't know anything. They were like, something's going on between y'all. So they, they like grabbed me and like dragged me out of the chair and threw me on the floor. And then at some point, you know, it all becomes like a blur because like there's, you know, 40, 50 people, you know, uh, just like mobbing you. And they're all yelling at you. John remembers the beatings going on for 20 to 30 minutes. And so they start yelling at me. And then, you know, one of them like sits on my legs. And then another one's like grabbing me by this arm and just like violently shaking me back and forth. And I ended up like with bruises on that arm, just like finger marks, you know. Um, and then, you know, there was people behind me, like, whacking me in the back and shaking me around and people grabbing my head and then, you know, um, somebody grabbing the other arm. So I was, like, you know, just, like, kind of held down. And then this guy who just sits on my legs and starts punching me in the chest, like, just punching me in the chest. And so he's just, like, punching me as hard as he can. And they're all, at this point, doing their blasting prayer where they're all yelling blasting, which you can hear in the background, is an ear-piercing, screaming prayer that lasts for hours. We'll talk more about this in a bit, but at this point, you may have figured out that this isn't your typical Christian church. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio, stories about real people pretending to be someone they're not. Before she was ever a pastor, Jane Whaley described herself as the wife of a preacher and a stay-at-home mom. Her husband, Sam, he would travel you know, overseas for work, and sometimes he would leave Jane to pastor the church while he was away. At first, it was a little hard for Jane to assume the role of pastor because she grew up believing that women weren't allowed to be in the ministry. But God spoke to her husband, Sam, and God said, Jane is the pastor. Later, Jane says she too spoke with God, and God told her the same thing. In 1979, God spoke to Jane again, and this time, he told her to start the Word of Faith Fellowship. Since then, the Associated Press has interviewed 43 former members who have described years of terror, physical abuse, and isolation, all in the name of God. The world didn't know much about the Word of Faith Fellowship until the late 1990s when it was investigated twice for its treatment of children. But eventually, they were cleared. It wasn't until 2013 when a young man named Matthew Frenner led law enforcement to investigate. 
Matthew Frenner claims church members gathered around him in the back of the sanctuary and began deliverance, or beating the gay demons out of him. He said that's the church's way of curing his homosexuality. So what's the difference between a cult and a religion? Some may argue there's no difference at all. Religions and cults do have some commonalities, but then again, so do country clubs and fraternities and sports teams. I mean, there are some clear differences between a legitimate religion and a cult. First, a cult typically has a single, unquestioned leader who makes all the rules and doesn't have to answer to anybody else. Often members have to live together in isolation with little to no interactions with friends. Cults are known for extreme recruiting methods, often depriving their members of sleep and food as well as performing brainwashing techniques. The Word of Faith Fellowship exhibits all these traits and some. To me, it's the alleged abuse that concerns me and the fact that some of it may still be happening today. When John Cooper described to me the day that 20 people beat him repeatedly in the chest, he said that degree of violence wasn't typical. They would typically shake you. They would typically slam you on the floor and hold you down and, you know, again, shake you back and forth and yell at you. But, like, they wouldn't often use their fist and punch you. They, they might actually, you know, hit you or, like, use both hands and kind of, you know, hit you in the chest. Shaking and slamming members on the floor is a form of deliverance meant to get the demons out. John says that that part was very typical. It was a very public thing when I was there, like in front of the whole church, they would beat you up or, you know, throw you on the ground or whatever. So um, I watched my cousin like get thrown through the drywall, like uh, in front of like probably 100 people. When church members got violent, they would also perform blasting prayers. Blasting, which is how Word of Faith members pray, it's almost unbearable to play on radio. Sometimes it was just a yelling sound like, like, ah, you know, just like no, no particular words, right? Sometimes like the prayer was more, was more, they were praying with you, right? You know, other times, you know, it was praying at you. It was dealing with you for, for your sin, right? And in those cases, there was a lot more of the yelling at you and yelling specific words. And then oftentimes they would actually yell for you. So, so what they would say is like, they would say what you should be saying. They expected you to be participating. They expected you to be following along with them. So they would yell, you know, forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me for coming under that idol. Forgive me, Jesus. So this is him kind of modeling, like, this is what you're supposed to say, right? You know? And they weren't saying forgive them, right? They're, they're telling you to say that, basically. And you're expected to say, forgive me, Jesus. And then they would say, you know, change my heart, Jesus. And you say, change my heart, Jesus, you know. And so, and you got 20 people around you yelling all different things at you. John and I are sitting at a park listening to blasting prayers that he was able to record before he escaped. People are probably like, what the hell is going on? Even me not growing up in a normal environment and not knowing what normal was, like, I still had enough sense to like know certain things were just really weird. There was actually a phase where Jane was telling everyone, if you have an unclean thought, which, you know, like, you, you see a girl and think, you know, oh, like, she's attractive. Or, you know, it just catch, even if you don't think any active thought, but, like, it just catches your eye. Like, a girl catches your eye, that's unclean. And so you should uh, blast 
that unclean. And so like she, she actually had people standing up in the middle of church service and just yelling out like, cause she told people to do this. Like it doesn't matter like if where you're at, where it doesn't matter where you're at. Um, you should like blast it in that moment. Unless you're in public. Church members are not allowed to perform blasting prayers in front of non-church members. If that happens, well... If you're in public and it happens, then you need to go into your car and, and blast. So, so, for example, we're in church and they're talking up there and I see a girl and I have like an impure thought. Yeah. I should just start yelling. Yeah, just... warning? Like, yep, yep. So that, but that was a phase. That was a, a short phase. Oh, okay. And then I think she realized that it was crazy. Cause like, that startles people. Oh like. yeah. Cause it was startling people. It was like interrupting the church service. And there were a few people who, uh, again, like people are trying to get to heaven. Like people legit buy into this. And so some of these people are, you know, like legitimately every time they had an impure thought or, or noticed uh, a guy or a girl, you know, they uh, would, would do this. And so there were, there were a particular group of people who just kept like interrupting the church service because they were taking it so seriously, right? And the rest of us are just like, oh, laugh. please. Oh, definitely not. No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was another thing you could get kicked out for. And I did at times where like something happened. It just was so silly. I asked John about the disturbing reports of child abuse involving infants. John says that babies weren't normally beat up, but they might be shaken and held down. I remember, you know, like little babies just, you know, screaming. And so they're, they're sitting there blasting them and just like holding, holding them where they can't move, you know, and the baby's like trying to, you know, fight or whatever, you know. So yeah, they, they blast babies all the time. Like if your baby's crying and like you can try like giving them the, bo- the bottle or, you know, putting them to sleep or changing their diaper or whatever. But like otherwise, like you, if you know how babies just cry occasionally and sometimes you don't know what's babies. going on. Yeah, it's a baby. But that is like demons or something. That's demonic. That is the devil tormenting that baby. Because a good, godly baby, like, should be peaceful. And so if your baby is crying and you can't figure out the reason, then it must be the devil tormenting them. And so they, you know, like, parents would would blast with, uh, like, blast at or with their baby for, like, hours sometimes. Eventually, the baby would quit crying they blast it for an hour or two and the baby finally like stops crying and goes to sleep and they say oh it finally broke I mean that was a really severe attack from the devil I'm like no the kid like yelled until they got exhausted either way they were going to keep going until that demon broke when I asked him how they treat their elderly he said they would scream at them but for the most part they weren't physically abusive so who is Jane Whaley What is she like? How can one person have so much control over individuals, a congregation, practically an entire town? I mean, why don't people just leave? But I was like two or three years old, you know? This is like my memory of like not even being tall enough to see like over the people in front of me to see her, but just hearing her yell like at the top of her lungs. Over the years, Jane made it a point to isolate herself from others. Even before church service, she would hide in her office. Uh, Jane, like, didn't mingle with us, right? They would get started without her, and when she was ready, she would come out and preach. 
so we would like sing basically until she was ready and she would like show up and then they'd be like okay we can stop singing and then she would you know talk so that was my interaction with her over the years was like seeing her from a distance and being like terrified of her because like she was the ultimate authority um jane was always like the ultimate threat so like you know if you're disobeying you're not doing what they tell you to do you know and they they might threaten threaten you with a spanking and then you know you're like i don't care go ahead and spank me you know and then they would be like oh well then i'll call jane and that was scary like really scary um so that's all i knew was like she was like the boogeyman i was so terrified like terrified to speak to her terrified to like look at her the wrong way you know and like i was a kid you know i just and so like if she was coming down the hall you'd be like you'd be like putting on your best face smiling and be like don't yell at me you know because like she would randomly just you know hear a story about you you know from someone else who reported you right and they'd just like come up and just yell at you or you know so she spanked me a few times as a kid and i was like I was scared of her more than the spanking, you know. Like, I remember just, like, physically just shaking uh, as a kid when I had to, like, talk to her or something, you know. Um, Because she's not physically threatening, like, into... No, no, I mean, she's an old lady, you know. Yeah, so she's... I don't... She's probably about five, four, uh, old white lady with, you know, uh, like, this golden-colored hair. Uh, I I remember Jane, you know, very explicitly, and I have a recording of, of her, you know, saying, you know, throw them on the ground and get their doubles out or that kind of thing. Often she would say that. Why didn't you get him and throw him to the ground and get his devils out? Grandmother, I need to talk to you by yourself. Please you can talk to me by yourself, but not now. That's a seductive devil right then. You're dead. Every one of them should have turned around and took you to the floor and got those devils out of you. She would talk about, you know, slamming people under the wall or whatever. Um, And then we watched it happen like so many times. So is Jane just pulling a fast one on everyone or does she really believe what she's preaching? I definitely think thought growing up that she bought it and I still do. I I think the more likely explanation is she's just that crazy. Like she actually believes um, in what she's doing. and she like be- actually believes that she is a you know a prophet an apostle like she actually calls herself an apostle of god again just as a refresher cult rule number 1 you need to have an unquestioned leader rule number 2 you need to isolate your members from the rest of society word of faith fellowship does this by making everyone believe that they're going to hell in order to get to heaven you have to go through jane first because Jane speaks for God, because Jane, you know, is the one who runs everything and basically whatever she says is what God said. You know, she always says, like, this is what God told me to tell you or, you know, this is what God is saying. So this was the only place in the world where they were doing things right. Um, And even if you're in the church, you're not guaranteed to go to heaven, right? Like Jane would even, you know, just was constantly, you know, yelling at church members or, you know, Uh, from the pulpit saying you know how y'all are all wicked even and you're going to hell um, unless you unless you repent unless you change your ways unless you basically follow what she was telling everyone to do Um, and so just that in and of itself as a kid um, I know that probably to you and probably to a lot of people who didn't grow up with that kind of a threat um, it it probably feel it, it just seems like a foreign idea to actually be scared of going to hell for questioning something. Um, but, like, that was legit. I'm not a psychologist, but 
This sounds like a classic case of Stockholm Syndrome, where hostages align themselves with their captors in order to survive. What else could keep these people from leaving when the door is wide open? And I, to be honest, wasn't as scared of being physically abused as I was of like being isolated or, you know, like a lot, to me, a lot of the psychological tactics were actually like worse. So tell me about, so the isolation was always there. Like when you say isolation, it means like you can't play, like you're being punished or you're physically isolated and you can't. So there were versions of it. There were like degrees of isolation. So um, they, again, they called it like church discipline or church discipleship. When a kid misbehaves, they are kicked out of school and sent to a special class where they are not allowed to talk to each other. This is the first degree of isolation. There were very limited freedoms, but whatever those were, were taken away. And you weren't allowed to do schoolwork, so you had to you know, sit there and read your Bible um, and then often just listen to hours and hours and hours of, of tapes. So they had, you know, um, when I was really little, like cassette tapes. What, like you're sitting in this room and you're like, obviously you don't want to be there. Right. What do you do? you like, do you watch the screen? Like... Yeah, you could make a choice to look away and not watch the video, you know, while you're on isolation, but um, but that would just make it last longer. Is there somebody there watching you watch the video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a, always a teacher in there, and they're watching you, and again, it's only a couple kids. And how, so is like, it like an hour? Is it? No, it's all day. And that's the mild version of isolation. The more severe versions, there's actually multiple more severe versions. So you could be like on, on a more severe version where you were like isolated um, at home and like not even allowed to come to church. Not going to church means you're not going to school, which means you're not going to see your friends. You're basically left alone for days. Probably the longest at any given time was like a month or two. Um, and uh, but other people, like my brother, one of my older brothers, um, was isolated for, I want to say, about a year. What happened to my brother was that, like, not only was he isolated at home, not allowed to come to school, not allowed to do anything, he had to um, stay in his room and, uh, and, like, not even come down for dinner. Like, my mom had to take a plate to his room. And then when he was done, she would go up and get his plate and bring it down. Like, he wasn't allowed to, we weren't supposed to make eye contact with him. He wasn't allowed to talk to us, see us. He had to stay in his room. What could a kid possibly do to deserve being isolated for a year? John says his brother and four friends were kicked out for giving in to foolishness. Foolishness is a term they use when kids get out of line. Literally, they were kicked out for over a year because they had been telling jokes and, like, cutting up in class. That's what they were kicked out for, for a whole year. So that, that's what I mean in terms of, like, yeah, the physical abuse was bad at times, you know, that, I mean, but, like, the psychological part, like, that's what I dreaded. I, I did not want to be kicked out. Like, that's, I mean, like, I remember just very vividly, like, that's what I was scared of. Then it got worse. In the early 2010s, around the time John was in high school, Jane instituted the worst version of isolation. Jane felt that too many men and boys were having erotic thoughts. She sent them away to get disciplined in what is now known as the lower building. This, John says, is where the worst abuse happened. Dozens of men and boys were forced to live here until they got the demons beat out of them. It's not just John Cooper saying this, 
42 other former members told the Associated Press the same horrifying story. The AP reports that even some school grade boys were placed in a makeshift prison with other adults. They say as many as 30 people were crammed into the building at one time. Picture this, the lower building is a one-story, four-room building with very few beds. Many had to sleep on the ground. There were no bars on the window, but occasionally someone would try to escape. But they were eventually found, returned, and beaten. Of course, by this time, uh, the physical part had changed to more of the, you know, less of the spanking and more of the beating and pushing and um Jane would talk about it from the pulpit all the time and talk about people that she sent down there and um, talk about how evil and wicked they were. Fortunately for John, he was never sent to the lower building, but others close to him weren't so lucky. Like, I didn't see my dad just for like a whole year. Just like never. Wait, he was in isolation for a year? Yeah, or longer. I don't, I'd have to ask him the exact time, oh but I God. just I just like did not see him for probably over a year, yeah. Jane Whaling reportedly shut down the lower building in late 2012 when she feared the police would maybe one day pay her a visit. They had kind of disbanded the lower building by that time because, again, uh, anytime they felt the heat, they would change what they were doing. I remember vividly that when this story broke, Jane, like, uh, called together a group of, like, 30, 40 guys um, and, and sent them all down there and was like, y'all fix that place up fast. So evidently they went down there, they cleaned it up, you know, only had a couple beds left, um, like, new drywall, new paint, new... Uh, I think even new carpet, I don't know. They, like, they totally revamped that place within like 24 hours. The raid never happened. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. I'm voting in the midterm elections because my constitutional right. Because my ancestors died. And to make it better for my children. The women before me fought. So we can remain free. Helping your community out. Midterm elections. I know every vote makes a difference. My opinion matters. I vote. I vote. I vote in the midterm election. Register now on IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. This recording is a bit hard to hear, but basically John Cooper says it's a conversation between Word of Faith Fellowship Pastor Jane Whaley and John Cooper's brother, Peter. 
Peter's questioning Jane if she thought it was okay for a church member to throw someone against the wall. If he'd written up like that, I would have. But I would have. Right, but it's not right to use force like that. That's what I, that could have caused later. Let me change. Let me you know, so basically the implication was like you should grab them and shake them and whatever, and it's fine if they hit the wall, you know. And so then Peter was like saying, well, that's not right to use force. And you heard her, you know, yell and say, uh, you know, and then say, um, you wouldn't be serving God today if some force were not used to you. Today we're going to talk about John Cooper's multiple attempts to escape what some describe as a cult. If you Google the Word of Faith Fellowship, it's become synonymous with horrifying rituals, physical abuse, and forced isolation. If what John is telling me so far is true, why would anyone want to raise their kids in this kind of environment? I asked John, and when his family moved to Spindale, North Carolina, things weren't so bad. So I was one. I don't remember anything before that. Um, I just kind of grew up there not knowing anything else. And then, like, as I got older, I started to realize things were weird. Uh, tell me, like, because from everything you re- you read about it, it sounds terrible, right? Like, yeah. Just, but was it always as bad as they described? Like, no. Was it, like, from always that intense? No. No, so, like, uh, when I... When I was a kid, what I remember more was like... More like your typical childhood. He played with neighbors, he watched TV, he read books. At this point, the worst abuse hadn't started. But things weren't always so peachy. He says church discipline and spankings were always a constant. Since before he could remember, church leaders were always in control. As kids, like, we weren't supposed to actually talk to each other without an adult being present. They called it having a guard. If you were ever caught just talking to your brother or your, you know, your classmate or whoever without asking an adult to listen to your conversation, like, you, you were supposed to, like, lock in and say, can I, can I talk to so-and-so? Uh, and, and then they had to, like, listen and make sure that you weren't, you know, saying something you shouldn't say. And so if you didn't do that, you might get spanked. We were supposed to only talk about essential things like if we, you know, bumped into each other, you could say sorry. You know, like there were limited things you were allowed to say without an adult being present. But, of course, we would try to run off and just, you know, talk. And this is all before it got bad. Right. 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 This is like so as a kid, do you walk around even though it was normal for you? Like, did you walk around like in constant like fear that like, you know, any wrong move? Yeah. Did you ever say, Dad, you know, what's going on? Like, is this... No, I was scared to talk to my parents about it. I mean, they were the ones, like, controlling me. You know, they were the ones, like, doing this stuff for Jane, uh, or influenced by Jane, obviously. But, like, they were the, if you will, perpetrators in that case. So I did, on occasion, I guess, tell my mom. I remember one one time, you know, riding with her in the car, um, and I remember, like, saying, I'm done, Mom. And I was, like, I was a young teenager, like, I don't know, 12 years old or something, and I was, like, uh, I'm done. Like, I don't want to ever go back to that school or that church. And she, like flipped out and like screamed at me and was like how dare you say that and you know you're gonna go to hell and again all those normal things that was one of the few times I remember actually saying it to her I, like I thought it all the time but I was scared to say it but that was like one of the few times I kind of mustered up the courage to say it and just got yelled at for it um 
so yeah, I could I could never really have that conversation with my parents, but I had that conversation with my brothers all the time and with a few friends. What's interesting is that at one point, his mother and father almost did leave the church. I do remember a period where they were trying to leave, and uh, they were like they were going to leave with most of us. But the problem was at that point, like there's so many of us, some of the older siblings were living elsewhere, and my basically the threat was if you leave, then like you're going to lose at least several of your kids. So at that point in your life, did you realize that they wanted to leave? Or no, so we were... Afterwards? Right, so we were never... I didn't know what had happened. All I knew was that, like, uh, some of these ministers were always coming over the house. Like, I knew something big was going on behind the scenes because, um, like, you know, these people were coming over. Uh, they were sleeping with us. Like, actually, one of them slept in my room a couple nights. and It could have been the threat of losing some of their kids or something else entirely. But the fact is, John's parents decided to stay. Now John is an adult and he's ready to leave, but there's a problem. He fell in love and now has a wife. It's easier to leave when it's just one person, but now there are two, which got me thinking, how did John end up with his wife, Jessica? The answer is, it wasn't easy. According to John, the church controlled every aspect of his life. He says kids have to report unclean thoughts and expose their sins. That means no flirting, no lustful thoughts. Can you imagine how hard it must be to meet a girl and fall in love? (sighs) Having thoughts about girls, Um, smiling at girls. I... Uh, so before my wife and I were married, when we were like in middle school or high school, I like smiled at her once and like got, uh, we both got like uh, spanked and uh, kicked out for a couple days or something. Uh, like you definitely weren't allowed to touch ever, uh, not even hold hands, not like nothing, n- no hugs, nothing. Like it's it's abnormal for a probably a young guy not to think about you know uh, a sexual interest and so you know they I guess they you know know that and so like it was nonstop like if you weren't reporting something then they would assume that you were lying and that you were hiding uh, what your thoughts and so you almost had to from time to time give them something and so I would do that occasionally like. I would, you know, self-report something. I, of course, like the, I would report it in such a way that I knew, like, I would only get a little, you know, reprimand. If they suspect any sexual deviance, John says they'll surround you and confront you. They'll say, like, something's up with you. Um, and so they all get in your face and start yelling at you. You tell us what's going on. You tell us what's going on. You're giving to the unclean. We know you are. The way it works is, like, you have to ask Jane or her daughter, Robin, um, initially to, like, be friends with what they call be friends. So they don't use the word boyfriend and girlfriend because that's worldly, and they don't use the term dating. Um, they call it walking out of friendship. They, they have all their own lingo for things. Um, and And so... Yeah, you have to ask to like walk out of friendship. And then and so then they have to prove it. It's not like the word of faith members have prearranged marriages. He says they just have to approve who you choose to be with. Most of the time they would approve. Other times they won't. And when John asked to be friends with Jessica, Jane said, "Yes." But the whole reason I'm bringing up John Cooper's love life is because of what happened next. So I remember one time uh, and it was actually my wife um, where they were, you know, dealing with her. Uh, that was, that's their terminology, dealing with you, right? Um, I remember uh, one of the ministers telling me to throw Jessica on the ground, and I was like, no, I won't do it. Like, um, this is before you were married? 
yes but um like she told me to do it and i was like no i will not do that and so somebody else jumped in and did it you know um well yeah i mean if i would have gotten in the way then like then they do it to me and so there were times when i tried to stop what was happening or tried to you know say something um to intervene in some way and they all turned on me and then i got beat up and that person still got beat up Eventually, John and Jessica got married. Here's Jessica speaking to the congregation during the wedding. I was just crying out, God, I want what you have for me. Whatever it is, Jesus, that's what I want. And that's when God dropped John David in my heart at the same time that God put me in his heart. And we started walking out the relationship, and it was wonderful. And I knew it was going to be forever. Then John grabbed the mic. I'll never forget, um, Jane and Sam told us they would be our grandparents, and, and this has been the best place for me. I, I love this place. I can't judge the sincerity of their comments. Maybe they were just playing along. Maybe they had a change of heart. I don't know. One thing's for sure. John wants to go to college and experience the real world. But like everything else at the Word of Faith Fellowship, it's not going to be easy. For one, the church won't allow him to enroll at a four-year university. He has to start at the local community college first. If you went to college, um, you had to be on sort of a buddy system. Typically, there's like five or six other uh, college-age people who are with you. Um, sometimes they would actually put like older adults in the classes with you. You know, everybody was kind of monitoring each other. So um, in college. Oh yeah, How like. Would they put the older adults? Yeah. So there was one uh, this lady named Bonnie. Bonnie is said to be one of Jane's proteges. So Bonnie probably took. I don't even, she took the same classes over and over for years there um, to be just so that she could be in there and, and like watch. So yeah, Bonnie w- took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of classes. Um, again, like I said, often repeating the same class over and over and over just to be in there and watch, you know, these, these college age and kids. The university didn't think that um, was weird at the college. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they did, but they allowed it, you know. After community college, John convinced Jane to let him finish his bachelor's degree at Wolford College, 45 minutes away in South Carolina. He could go, but under one condition. He has to go with his brother, Peter. My brother and I first started college again after being separated for 10 years. It was like, we were both scared. Like, is he going to tell? Am I going to tell? You know, and, and so sometimes we told on each other just because we were scared that the other one might, you know, and um, until we realized, oh, hey, he's not telling about like, you know, you can do little things like very little things and uh, and like see like, is he going to tell? And then he didn't. And I was like, oh, OK. So it took a little while, but um, but it was nice because like we got to a point where we realized that we could still trust each other, and and then we were able to kind of not embarrass ourselves the way that we would have had to um, if it would have been someone else with us. Embarrass themselves? Yes. Apparently, Word of Faith members are supposed to make a scene in class if the professor offends them in any way. Like if they wanted to play music for any reason, you were supposed to just like publicly like tell them no you can't play music because it's against my religious beliefs any music and then just walk out and like make a scene of it Did like you ever do that um so a few times i didn't want to but like the question was either i walk out with everyone like i'm told to or i know as soon as i get home from this class i'm i'm isolated for however long and probably kicked out of college for john getting kicked out of college was a real threat Getting kicked out for even a semester could be a real setback. 
not only that, it was his only escape. Even though we were by ourselves there, like we were always having to check in and they knew our schedule. And so if we tried to do anything, you know, so basically what I'm saying is, you know, could never hang out with friends, could never really do any activities. So, yes, we got a small taste, but it was pretty much limited to just whatever happened in the classroom because we weren't allowed to do much else. John and his brother Peter graduated college and were planning to go to medical school. John got accepted to UNC's medical school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But there's a problem. John's brother Peter, he didn't get in. And the buddy system fell apart. Again, you know, the buddy system was such that we had to go together. And so Jane was like, you know, you're not going without him. I was already wanting to leave again for a long time, but that was kind of what pushed my timeline because I knew I had to, like, take that opportunity. At this point, John is married. He was trying to figure out how to start this conversation with his wife. So, you know, just broaching that conversation with her and saying, like, um, you know, like, I want to leave. It's like a hard thing to start because, like, if you say if you say that and they get you in trouble and you, you know, you go through all the normal um, normal discipline. And that actually happened when they were first married. There had been a point where she had tried to leave, and I knew that, which was part of the reason that I was, like, comfortable marrying her, because <laughs> I was like, I know she's wanted to leave before. Hopefully we can get married and then leave. I knew she had wanted to leave, and so what I said was, like, hey, if you would have left, I would have left, you know, because um, we had been dating at that time. And, um, and you know, she, like, reported me because she was scared or whatever. Again, you don't know if you can trust each other, and, and there's, there's so many ways of, of you getting in trouble. Like, Sometimes people crack under that pressure and, you know, uh, and go tell on themselves. So say we were together, I did something wrong and you were like, oh, I'm not going to tell on you, you know. And then later on, I get convicted. I get, you know, um, my kind of guilty conscience takes over and I'm like, oh, I have to report myself for all these things that I've done. And so, um, you know, you go like confess. So if you want to leave, you first have to overcome the psychological barriers, like the fear of going to hell. Then you have to prepare yourself for possibly losing your family. In John's case, his wife, his mother, his father, his siblings. If he leaves, he will lose the roof over his head and his car, because even though it was his car, the title was under someone else's name. I had to convince Jane to let me get the car in my name. Um, and I told her that I needed to build my credit, and she believed me. So, um, so it worked out, but it took a few months of preparation and trying to get things lined up. And then, like, where are you going to go? So you're losing everything. You're losing your, your income, your, your house, you know, everything. So, like, where are you going to go? Um, you, aren't, you don't really have friends on the outside. Luckily for John, he had the number of a friend who managed to leave just a few months before him. It worked out uh, such that I finally like, had somewhere to go where I had someone's number and I was like, uh, yeah, I called him up and I was like, hey, can we come like crash at your place until we can figure this out? John wasted no time. The day he got the car title under his name, he was ready to make his move. It was a Wednesday afternoon. We got that title in our name, and they had church Wednesday night, and so I was like, this is so perfect. So what I did was I, I like got dressed, ready to go to church that night. They were living with his wife's parents. So we told them, oh, we're, we're heading to church. We're just going to go to the gas station and, you know, fill up the car, which we did. So we went to the gas station, filled up the car, made sure we had, you know, gas, and just, like, waited there um, until, like, 6.30, which was the, uh, the time that church started. And so right at 6.30, we figured everybody would be gone from the neighborhood because um, there was a lot of, of members who lived in that neighborhood. So we, like, zoomed back into the neighborhood, grabbed, like, grabbed what we could fit in our car and in, in, like, 10 minutes, and uh, 
and like and hiked it out of there. I was prepared to like never, you know, see my family again. John was the first in his family to leave the church. Then two brothers left, leaving behind their wives. Since then, most of all the siblings have left the church, except for one. Eventually, his parents left the church. We don't talk a lot about it, uh, just in general terms, like they've apologized on, on many, um, many times. The thing, too, is that my parents didn't know everything that was going on, even, you know, with us. Like, stuff would happen at school, but we were, like, told, don't you dare go home and tell your parents. So, like, they didn't know half of the abuse, you know. Like, yes, they spanked us at home and they controlled us and, you know, followed the rules, but, like, they weren't physically, uh, well, other than if you call the spanking abuse or not, is I don't know. But, like, they, they never beat us or punched us. Um, like, they weren't physically abusive in that way. John remembers getting a call from his parents shortly after he left. Um, told her that Jane was not allowing me to go to med school, um, and she didn't realize that either, um, that those meetings had been happening and Jane had been saying I wasn't going to go. So um, so once I explained things to her, like, she didn't believe me at first, but she, you know, because, like, that's a long mental leap. You know, what the things I was saying was kind of implicating that Jane was wrong. And so, again, now she's having to go through her own kind of struggle, I'm sure. Um, and so then her and my dad started talking to my other siblings, and then my other siblings were kind of corroborating what I was saying. So what happens now? After all the allegations, law enforcement investigations, what now? I know the psychological abuse is still in place. I know the isolation is still in place. So they, they disbanded the lower building, right? Because, you know, the public found out about that. So that changed, you know, but those people were all still isolated. They just were isolated at home, you know. Every, you know, it changes, but it stays the same. And um, and so that's why, like, I know that uh, they're still abusing people. The people who have left after me are still telling, you know, stories of how they were, you know, how the abuse has continued, um, but just changed in different ways. It took me a while after I became an adult to get out just because of the logistics and the, you know, all the control that was in place. Um, and so, so I understand that, but what, what really I care about is like the kids who are there. Um, it, you know, I was that kid. I mean, I didn't know any different. And, um, I remember just my whole life, like thinking of wanting to leave and like, how, how am I going to get out? Like, where am I going to go? Or, you know, um, and just like crying at night or, you know, just feeling like tortured, you know? And, uh, and so that's why I want to, like, want to talk about this. I want to make something happen. You know, it needs to stop. In the wake of a disaster, what one thing can you send that will help people the most? A blanket. A tent. A sandbag. A doctor. Actually, if you send a monetary donation, you send all these things. Even a small donation can make a big impact and can quickly become exactly what people affected by disaster need most. In the wake of a hurricane, your monetary donation can make a huge difference to those in need. To donate, visit supporthurricanerelief.org. That's supporthurricanerelief.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Today, let's try to look at this story from the perspective of the Word of Faith Fellowship. It's going to be a little tricky considering I haven't gotten a response from the church. I've reached out to church representative Joshua Farmer several times and still haven't heard anything back. So I decided to give Pastor Jane Whaley a call on her personal cell phone. What would happen if I called her? She'd blow you off, probably. But like, would she answer the phone? Doubt it, but she might. 
this is it. I have one shot to get this right. My strategy is to tell her up front that I want to tell her side of the story. And I want to learn more about her faith. But if she answers, I have only a couple seconds to make my case and prevent her from hanging up. So I find a quiet space and I dial her number. Okay, here goes nothing. I'm going to call Pastor Jane Whaley and see what she says. No answer. So I try again this time. This time. Someone picks up. Hello. This is Javier Leva. Um, I'm calling because I'm doing a story on the Word of Faith Fellowship, and I really want to tell your story and your point of view and what you believe in. And not, you know, we don't have to talk about the allegations at first, but I definitely want uh, to sir, know what you're about. Sir, yes? it, it, excuse me. Uh, you have the wrong number. Whoops. <laughs> that was awkward. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um uh, do you go to the Word of Faith Fellowship? No, I do not. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't really need to know what you're talking about. Sir. Oh, okay. Okay, no problem. No problem. Thank, thank you for your time. All right. Have Bye. a great day. You too. So I can't get Jane directly, but we do have a statement released by the church. It says... We are shocked and saddened to learn of the false allegations made against our church by certain former members. It goes on to say, We do not condone or allow abuse in any form at our church, period. These false allegations were predominantly made by members of an extended family. The allegations to this small group of people should be viewed in contrast to the number of faithful members in our large congregation. It's true, the Word of Faith Fellowship has 750 members in Spindale, North Carolina, and nearly 2,000 members in churches based in Brazil and Ghana. The press release ends saying, We remain hopeful that the public will see through these fabrications and see them for what they are. We've heard a lot about John Cooper, but what about some of the people that he left behind? What do they have to say? Unfortunately, I just can't drive up to the church because it's tucked away and it's closed to the public. However, I do have some video testimonials from some of the Word of Faith Fellowship members. You see, the church has a YouTube channel devoted to telling their side of the story. Let's start with Amy. My name is Amy. I was married to Peter Cooper, a former member of the Word of Faith Fellowship. If you recall from the last episode, Peter was the brother who went to college with John Cooper. And I realized I had to get out of that marriage because there was nothing left. All his motives were to use me. He wanted to get me to lie like he is today. She's visibly shaken. And I absolutely was not going to lie about the people that I love because the things that he says are not true. He didn't want me talking to any of the ministers unless he was there because he wanted to record them. And then he would take me to these meetings and we would sit down with his family. They would play recordings. They would see how they could alter these videos to make a story, to make it sound the way they wanted it to sound. To use it against innocent people, against lives that never did anything but care for them. Also, the video is a little choppy, so I can't really tell if the church is cutting it down for time or if they're just feeding her lines in between takes. They say that there are 43 that are coming out speaking against the church. Let's just take one look. You have a whole family and their cousins, their wives, and a few close friends, their children. That adds up to 43 very quickly. 
the Cooper family alone makes up a good portion of the people speaking out against the church. So this is one entire family that is choosing to bring out stories. Sean Smitherin, John Cooper's brother-in-law, had this to say. So John David wants to paint this picture and twist this to fit his narrative that he was psychologically controlled and manipulated by Jane Whaley, and his every move was dictated to the point where he couldn't buy a car, couldn't get married without the permission of Jane Whaley. The truth is, he didn't have money to buy a car because he hadn't held down a job and he had been going to college and didn't have any credit. He goes on and on about the car for a minute. John David wanted to go to college, and we were all right behind him. We worked to get him a car, worked to get him uh, tuition paid, gave him housing, we lived together. Um, and he was shown nothing but love in our family. Uh, so how does he stray so far to come back and try to make it that we're the enemy? So what about John's claim that the church stalked him after he left the church? This is John speaking at a town hall meeting about what happened. When, when my wife and I first left, um, they were stalking us, like following us in cars, and they, uh, they actually like got into my wife's um, online account using like Find My iPhone to try to track us based on the iPhone location data. Um, they actually like followed us all the way up to Capitol, which is four hours away. It was her parents that actually followed John when he talks about there was a truck that followed us and, and they were hacking our phones and it was her parents who were genuinely concerned about the safety of their daughter. They just left and left and we had no idea if she was in danger or what happened. So there's no truth that he was psychologically controlled and he had to overcome all these obstacles. He was given everything and the road was paved and even after he left, he talks about, you know, they had to do it all on their own. They were still supported by her parents, um, mainly, really, until he got his Navy scholarship. So how does Sean rationalize John Cooper's anger against the church? When it really started changing, when I started seeing John David change, was two or three years into college, when he started being swayed by some atheistic teachers. He started questioning whether Christianity was true and whether that was the religion for him. And nobody tore him down or demented him because of it, but tried to help him. And he moved away. Everybody still supported him. But now he's come back and he wants to bring harm to us because his beliefs are different than ours. He wants to endanger my family. When you attend a forum and lie and tell people they abused me, they beat me, what does that want, make you want to do? to those people that committed these acts. It makes you want to hunt them out. Well, this is in my town. I have uh, a little girl and I have another one on the way. I don't take them out in public right now because of the hate that's been incited by these lies. So what do others in the church have to say about the accusations? Benjamin McGee says that the Word of Faith Fellowship is just an ordinary church. There's nothing illegal happening. I've been here for 22 years, and I don't know anything about the abuse that has gone on in this church because there was none. To what extent are these guys willing to go to lie, to prove their story, to make their agenda, whatever they want to do? How far are they going to go with it? How, how bad are they going to lie? 
That's my question. Benjamin says these aren't hostage videos produced by the church. There is nobody forcing me to do this video right now. And by the way, I have no teleprompters in this room. I'm speaking of my own accord. I travel as I please. My friends come and go as they please. We talk together when we want to. We do anything we want to do. And we're very happy here in this church. In season one of Pretend Radio, you heard from a man named John Cooper who described the years of physical abuse carried out by Jane Whaley's followers. Give us Jesus! They like grabbed me and like dragged me out of the chair and threw me on the floor. Forgive us, Jesus! Forgive us! We're Forgive us, Jesus! This time, I'm going to dedicate an entire season to the Word of Faith Fellowship to answer questions I left unanswered. Who is Jane Whaley? Is she a prophet of God? Or is she just profiting from her followers? How did she rise to power? And is it true that she has human slaves working for her? We're not letting go of God's will with each other. That's right. I'm gonna do my best to answer all these questions. But the truth is that the more I start digging, the more questions I still have. And at one point in this season, I get so deeply tangled in this story that I actually become part of it. What's the matter with us? We're not gonna burn God's will! This season is full of surprises. And true to form, there's a shocking development halfway through. So stick around and join me as I unpack this story one episode at a time. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet, coming soon. You've heard the stories about murder and homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes committed daily? What about the police officer who robbed banks during lunch or the multi-million dollar diamond heist? What about the assaulters, stalkers, and arsonists? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a new true crime podcast that tells the stories of non-murderous crimes. Season one has begun and new episodes release on Mondays. Mugshot can be found on most podcatchers 
and on social media at the handle at MugshotPod. I hope you'll join me, but until then, be on your best behavior or you'll end up with your own mugshot. Hey folks, I'm Josh. And I'm Eli. And this is our new podcast called Soliloquy in Stereo. We just wanted to give you a little context to the show and what we're all about. I'm a writer and budding voice actor. And I'm a musician, writer, and theatrically inclined. Eli takes to heart the phrase, life's a stage. Anyway, this is a podcast where Josh and I perform various works that we love and want to share with you all. Things like movies, plays, short stories, or really any media we can find. So join us every other week in our adventures of... Folly and Foley. (sighs) Soliloquy and Stereo. Creative Babble.